you have your Bible, turn with me to Revelation 21. Revelation 21, we find ourselves at the end, end of the Advent uh, series. And you're probably thinking, wait, 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 Advent? Isn't that about Christmas? And, and then Christmas already happened, but, but here we are, you know, just a couple days later. And actually, I don't know if you know this, the 12 days of Christmas, from a historical sense, actually begins on Christmas Day, and the 12 days go beyond. And so we are actually in good space to have another Advent sermon, to sing songs like Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, which is exactly where we find ourselves in Revelation 21. Uh, Listen, do you ever feel like the world is too heavy? Maybe the constant flood of tragedy in the world just seems overwhelming to you right now. Every day brings a new report of things that are just too terrible to make sense of, uh, too awful to bear. I mean, wars, rumors of wars. Abortions, miscarriages, divorces. A lot of things some of you may have experienced. Death, tragedy, heartache. Many things that you likely experienced in 2023. I don't know if you know this. 2023 has not been the easiest year for even our church. And I've said jokingly to other people, Man, 2023, good riddance. It's time. It's time to move on. Uh, Maybe you don't need the help of the news. And there are just things going on in your life, in your neighborhood, in your family. And the weight of life is just too much to carry. Do you feel hurt? Do you feel confused? Do you feel exhausted and too sad to go on? Or or maybe it's, it's everything at once. You don't even know where to start. And you have no idea when it will end. Have you ever been there? Well, God has revealed to us in his word a great hope for weary, tired Christians. Right? Revelation 21 speaks of this new advent, the second advent. One that we are looking forward to we, with great longing and next. An expectation. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Word reads this way. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers 
will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God, we recognize our true need for you. We thank you for your word, which brings us hope. God, may you move before us. Let us not be unchanged by your words today. Help us. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Revelation is written to a persecuted church. John has been exiled for his faith, essentially thrown out by the governing authorities, exiled to this island. And there he's probably wondering, at least in the beginning, how in the world is this going to end? And then God gives him this vision, a message to get back to the church that is under this persecution. Where, where's it all going? What kind of perspective should we have when things seem to be so awful in the world around us? Revelation gives us God's eternal perspective, something that we vitally need to get uh, through, that we need to get through what seems to be this unending day of suffering and injustice. Because some days when we don't feel like we can keep going on, maybe we just want to get out of here. Don't you just sometimes think, Lord, uh, could you just beam me up already? Maybe you felt that way this morning, trying to get the kids ready and get out the door. Lord, if you could just call game over right now, um, that'd be all right with me. You ever felt that way? Now, most of us were thinking about getting out of this place, out of the, this world that we're in, this current mess of a world we're in. We're usually thinking about some sort of evacuation, getting, you know, maybe vacuumed up out of this place, uh, right? The, the rapture. If you were, grew up in the 90s church culture, high, heavily influenced by the Left Behind series, which... I would not recommend you getting your theology from. But God's plan is far more creative than that. And far more comprehensive than just uh, throwing away all the stuff that, that we uh, see and experience and, and, and touch and feel. What we see in all of John's revelation, especially here in chapter 21, is that the end is in fact the beginning. The end is actually just the beginning because Jesus will eternally fulfill creation's groanings. You know, there's a misconception of what heaven is like. I don't know, maybe yours was influenced by my early childhood, watching the Tom and Jerry cartoon. You know, Tom would be killed and what would happen? He would float up into heaven in his little diaper, his little soul would, and his diaper and he'd be playing a harp in the clouds and those kinds of things. Maybe your theology of heaven was 
was in, informed by the, the, the little trinket aisle in, Life, in the Lifeway Christian Bookstore. Precious Moments dolls and those kinds of things. I don't know. Maybe your idea of heaven is this boring choir practice that goes on and on and on and on and on and on forever and ever. The Bible, the Bible's uh, in, uh, vision actually of the end of all things is a lot bigger than that and more eternal than that. What we see in the scripture's vision of life at the end of all this, yes, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. So there is a place in paradise that those who die in Christ will go to heaven when they, when they die. But as N.T. Wright, which I don't recommend everything he writes, but I love what he says right here about heaven. The Bible doesn't just hold out the hope of life after death for us. It holds out the hope of life after life after death. Which brings us to the first point I want to draw from the passage this morning. And I'll expound on this. But going to heaven when you die, and bear with me here, okay? This might ruffle some feathers to hear this. Going to heaven when you die is a temporary perspective. The eternal perspective of the second advent is not our going to heaven, but heaven coming to us. Verse 1, that I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. This is the vision at the end of time. That is cast actually throughout really the whole New Testament. It walks, you know, talks about this. We saw this in Romans chapter 8 most recently. And it's even there in the Old Testament. As well as instances in the Old Testament. You think about the book of Job. Uh, preached to that book maybe a year or so back. The story of Job is one of the greatest sufferers in human history. Job lost everything that would... Uh, that would bear to anyone, you know, he lost everything that he, you know, it was more to bear. Anyone lost his family, he lost his family, he lost his job, loses his home, loses his health. Uh, he lost everything. And he's sitting in this ash heap and there's boils all over his skin. And the book of Job tells us that he had shards of pottery and he was literally scraping this these boils off of himself. And Job is in that place where a lot of us have been. Maybe not exactly where Job has been, but, but we've been there, right? Like, can I just die? Could you just kill me, God? Death is better than this. I'm ready to die. But Job's hope isn't actually going to heaven when he dies. This is what he says, Job 19, 26. Even if worms destroy my body, yet in my flesh, I will see God. His flesh. See, he, he's not looking at some outer spatial paradise. He's looking at the end uh, of, of, of everything, and it's actually the beginning, a new beginning, a resurrection. He's looking for the resurrection, the new heaven. The new earth. That is what Peter promises in his letter to the churches. For instance, 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter talks about the earth being burned up in fire, but he doesn't say that's the end in verse 13. 
of that chapter, he says, but based on God's promises, we wait for a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And John tells us here in verse 1 of Revelation that the present earth will pass away. Yes, but only because it is giving way to a new heaven and a new earth. Now, he says that he sees in his vision that the sea was no more. And before you fishermen think, oh man, what does that mean? You, you sports uh, fishing enthusiasts, you, you water skiers, you lake lifers, okay? That's not, you know, there, maybe you're thinking there's not going to be water in heaven. Can't, can't go fishing over by the pearly gates. You know, maybe that's what you're thinking, and it could be there uh, will be no ocean, no sea. I tend to not think that's what it means. Revelation 21 is full of metaphors. A city that is a bride, full of measurements that aren't intended to be taken literally. The sea was not a place of rest in the ancient world. The sea was a place of chaos. Think about it. It's where you would go to get shipwrecked. The sea is unforgiving. Lots of people disappeared and died and were never seen again when they ventured out in the sea. Maybe eaten by sharks. I don't know. It was a place of chaos, though. And we need to see in context of what John is actually saying in verse 5. Jesus promises he's making all things new, and this includes the oceans. It's everything. No more danger. No more risk, risk of death, exposure, only beauty. Something greater, better, more glorious. The end is just the beginning and nothing will remain untouched by Christ's redemptive power. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This wedding imagery here is very important because the wedding, remember, may be an end to the engagement, but it is not the end. It's the beginning of a new journey, isn't it? You know, in a couple of months, uh, my friends John Pitek and Amy Abercrombie are going to be getting married. They're covenant members of our church. And they're thinking, they're praying about marriage, they're, they're planning um, and, and, and there's an engagement and there's a looking forward to and a, an expectation for that day. But guess what? That day is not some culmination of like, oh, that's it. No, it's it, the beginning. It's the beginning of a new chapter of life for them. In Revelation 21, that is in the very serious sense, the end. And yet the wedding imagery is really a sign that the end is just the beginning. The repetition of newness, the concept of newness throughout this passage is proof of this as well. There's, there's a new heaven and a new earth. There's a new Jerusalem. Verse 5, and, and he who is seated, seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. He doesn't say I'm making all new things. He said, I'm making all things new. A new world. New city, yes. A new people, 
Yes, his church. The new Jerusalem is the church. Not only is he renewing the world, ushering in a new world, he's renewing a people, a husband, gives of himself for his bride, the church. Which brings us to the second point I want to pull from the passage this morning. Through the second advent, Jesus will finally and permanently redeem his bride, the church. All that's left in the stage of history is a woman, the church. You see, in the last couple of chapters of Revelation, there's, there's actually not a lot about heaven. But what there is a lot about is the church, God's purified people. And let me just say in passing, just to stress here, the importance of the church. Now, I, I know that there have been all sorts of issues with the church. Okay? You get hurt by the church. You were part of a church that was dead and was just formal and nothing was going on there. So I understand that. But I also want to say very respectfully, you need to get over it. If that's your reason for not wanting to be a Christian or, and and I've had these conversations with people, right? I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want to go to church because there's hypocrites there. Yeah. Yeah, there are. It's a perfect place for the hypocrite. It's absolutely perfect. If that's your reason for not wanting to be a Christian, or if that's your reason for not wanting to get serious about God, you need to get over it. Especially if it's some sort of childish, anti-authority, anti-institutional thinking. Some even believe organized religion just doesn't work anymore. And yet, I just want to say, you know, If that's it, if that's your stumbling block, sometimes you just have to grow up. You know, there there are going to be leadership teams in churches. If you want a church to exist, you can can call them committees. You can call them thrill-seeking adventure journey groups. You can call them uh, ministry small groups. But there's going to be some people who get together and meet and make decisions and they decide things. And somebody has to decide when to rip up the carpet and what color to do it. Coming to a church near you in 2024. This green has got to go. Okay? That's just part of the church. Some simply want no institution, no church, just, just me and Jesus, all of us together. But then somebody's got to turn the lights on. Somebody's got to pay the bills. And if you're going to have more than 30 people, you're probably going to have to decide on some things. And you're going to have programs, for heaven's sake, 1045, there's a church. It's a program. Get over it. There are habits. People want Christianity without authority, without doctrine or boundaries, moral expectations or commitments or or accountability. And it's a free country. You can have that religion if you want, but it's just not Christianity. A church with no doctrine, no boundaries, no commitments is not a Christian church. It's just not. What does he finish with in chapter 21? You get this picture of the church. Us. 
us. Some people here talk too much. Some people here are too quiet. Some of us are very opinionated. Some of us have no opinions at all. Some of us are, say rude things. Sometimes we gossip. Sometimes we complain. Sometimes we're sarcastic. We pout when we don't get our way. Sometimes we don't communicate well. And sometimes we are amazingly generous and forgiving and absolutely inspiring. You say, wow, that, that's the church. That's what God is working with to renew, to make us beautiful. And, and see, this, this all to put in perspective whatever sort of struggles or successes you have. You know, why is everything going well for him? You know, I can't, I can't get a job. I don't have a nice house. Why, why is this going on? And you think, maybe this is God helping me to get my metaphorical dress on straight. Why is my life so hard? Why don't I get, uh, seem to, to get any breaks? Maybe this is God helping you just to, you know, get your hair just right for the wedding. Maybe your trials is God's way of applying the makeup just so, making you beautiful. That's, that's what he's about, making, beautiful, make, making you beautiful for himself. And here comes the good news, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Do you recognize this language? This is the fulfillment of the covenant promise. All throughout scripture, one of the central organizing principles is the covenant. God's arrangement with his people. The covenant of grace with Abraham begins back in Genesis chapter 12. And he says, come, come out of the land of idolatry and I'll give you a place for your descendants and you will be a blessing and I will bless you. In Genesis 17, he confirms this covenant with uh, a circumcision. And he says, I will give this land to you and your descendants after you. I will be their God. There's covenant promise. Yes, the covenant is about justification. It's about making the world a better place. It's about holiness. But most foundationally, God's covenant with his people is, is about that one thing. I will be your God and you will be my people. He repeats it in Exodus 6. I will take you as my own people. And I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. He says in Leviticus 26 in the law. I will walk among you and, and be your God. And you will be my people. And he says it again. Uh, to the, to, as the people are facing Babylonian uh, captivity and threats. Jeremiah 7 
Obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. He says it in Jeremiah 11 and 30 and 31. He repeats it uh, when, there are, when they're in exile. Ex- uh, Ezekiel 36, he says, You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. That's why Hosea, remember Hosea? Right, marries the prostitute Gomer, and they have children, and he and he has to name one of them Lo Ami, which uh, Lo means not, Ami means people. Your name for uh, you name your son, uh, not my people, right? Hosea one nine. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. This is the the curse. This is the worst curse that can fall upon us. Lo Ami. Because it's the anti-covenant. I, I'm not your God and you are not my people. All throughout, literally, Genesis to Revelation is this covenant promise. It's actually the story of a wedding. I will be with you and I will be your God and you will be my people. You see in verse 3, the word dwelling. Some of you may know this word. Uh, uh, skene, which is the word for tabernacle. In John 1.14, we read the word became flesh and made his dwelling. His skene, he tabernacled among us. Because what was the tabernacle? It was the same idea as the temple. The, t- the tabernacle was the place where God dwelt. That's why Moses had to go through such great pains to make it exactly what he saw up on the mountain because God would dwell there and it was a pattern of heaven. The tabernacle and the temple were a picture, literally, of heaven on earth. This is what we saw as we look into heaven and so we can make this tabernacle because this would be where God's glory dwelt, the Shekinah, right? The cloud of his presence would be there in this tabernacle. And then later, the tabernacle, this temple, which is just the same. It's the same. It's the tabernacle you can make. And, you know, you can make it and bring it to Huntsville. And the temple, you can, you know, you can go there. It's in Jerusalem. Um, and that's why it's so amazing. And John says, Jesus The word became flesh and he tabernacled among us. God now with us. Heaven came down to earth. That's why Revelation 21, 22 says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. You don't need a temple because heaven is here. God's dwelling is with us. The glory and hope and joy of the new heaven, the new earth, is that the Lord will be our God and we will be his people. Which brings us really to the final point. The the main thing that we need to see, our fundamental problem in life, which will be fully remedied in the second advent, advent, is that we are alienated from God. That's our biggest problem. Because of sin, we have been alienated from God, separated from God. We are separated from God and we are left out of the circle of blessing, exposed to all the mess of the world, including our own sin. When Jesus returns, 
and ushers in this new heaven, new earth, when all of this has been redeemed, the best part of it all is that we get unfettered access to God. He will be our God and we will be his people. When we receive the gospel, we actually receive God. Not simply life in heaven, which is good and right, right? Longing to see the people who've, maybe, a, maybe you have a spouse who's died. Maybe you have a child who's died. It's, it's good to long for those things. But heaven would not be heaven without God. God is our ultimate source of joy. He is our ultimate source of hope and stability. Why? What will this mean for us? Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. When Jesus returns to bring a renewed heaven and earth, he will bring, uh, he will bring them out of the, the stain of sin to this whole place, to the whole world we live in that's under a curse because of sin, because Adam's sin infected everything with, all, uh, with a kind of cosmic rebellion. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ has come to redeem everything as far as the curse is found. And he has conquered sin and, and he has conquered death. He, he conquered the grave and he is bringing a new world when he returns that will be free of all the suffering, all the pain. A world free of injustice, a world free of depression, a world free of cancer, a world free of sickness, no pain. This verse is just one more proof that Jesus, he cherishes his people. It's an announcement to, to you that your pain, your, your grief, it is not in vain. Nothing will be wasted. Brothers and sisters, on that day, he will wipe away every tear from your eye. And he will look into your face and he will gently and kindly finally say to you, no more. And there will be no more. These words are faithful and true as the text tells us. This is the eternal perspective we need in our times of sorrow while we wait. When, when we don't know how we are going to, to make it in this life anymore, we, we look with great anticipation to the second advent. We won't have time to cover every verse this morning, and that's okay. But verse 6, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water, the spring of the water of life without payment. Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. He's saying, I am the beginning and I I'm the end. Jesus is the eternal God. The end is just the beginning because there is no end to the one who had no beginning. The one who has there, one who was there in the beginning. And so we can know that the salvation he brings, the life he brings to those who will trust in him 
will also be eternal. And this spring of water, and this spring of the water of life is a picture of this endless satisfaction. It's the same kind of water that Jesus offered to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Do you remember that? He says, you drink from this water, you'll never be thirsty again. When a sinner comes to Jesus in faith, his sins are forgiven forever. And the eternal life of Christ is put inside of him so that he will never have to face eternal death. He's given eternal life. And I just want to say this in closing, and I know maybe the deacons uh, will, can begin moving to the Lord's table. I just want to mention the warning for you in verse 8. If you have not repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus, your weeping will not end. There will be no consolation. Heaven is coming for those who trust in Christ. But for those who do not, for those who remain committed to the way of sin, the eternal result is this, is this place of con condemnation that we call hell. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus himself, Jesus talked a lot about hell, actually. A whole lot about hell. So any Christian church that doesn't preach this message of Jesus is not a Christian church. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus himself says that this place is full of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not only will the weeping continue, it will get worse. Let me tell you something. Most people who live in this broken life believe the worst thing that can happen to them is that they would die. Uh, that's what most people believe. But dying is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Dying after you die, in verse 8, as mentioned, the second death, is the worst thing that can happen to you. Why? Because it's going to be a place without the presence of God. But if you're hearing my voice today, it's not too late. Human beings stand condemned because of our sin against the holy God. But this same God, in his great love for sinners like you, sent his son to die on the cross in your place. To take your punishment. And to forgive anybody who would come in faith to him. Anybody, any, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone. And he rose again to conquer death and to purchase eternal life. And if you want this gift of eternal life, you can have it. He will not withhold it from you. You might be faithless in one minute. You might be guilty of all your sins that, you, that, that are mentioned in, in verse 8. But you can be free from the condemnation 
they deserve. If you will turn from your sins and put your faith in Christ. You can have the hope of consolation that we sang about. When Christ returns, if you trust in him for salvation today, for those who have believed in the gospel, we long, we look forward to the second advent. For now, we see, as the scriptures tells us, through a glass dimly, but when the climax of what begins in our conversion will be our finally, we'll be finally seeing Jesus face to face, our Redeemer who lives and will stand upon the earth, our eyes will see him. Being with Jesus forever, walking with him as his beloved friends and, and, and as his glorious brothers and sisters will make even the hardest, most painful life totally worth it. The end will just be the beginning. Do you believe it? Let me pray for you.